Um, okay, so we're diving into Ruth. If you haven't already, turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 4. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Um, I want to do a quick recap of the story. And before I do, I want to let you know about a couple things. We just commissioned members tonight, this afternoon at 4 o'clock in this space. If you would like to learn about what membership means to us, um, you can come here. We're going to uh, just talk through our beliefs, through our member covenant, and, and what it looks like to partner with us in ministry. Um, I already said this. Members here don't just get privileges. They get responsibilities. And so at this uh, meeting, you're not like signing over anything. You're just here to learn about what does it mean to be a faithful member of a church. And we'll explain what that means to us um, this afternoon at 4. So you're invited to that. Um, so we're four weeks in. This is week number five of looking at the story of Ruth and specifically at God's faithfulness through this story. So four weeks ago, I want to recap really quickly what got us to uh, chapter four of Ruth, okay? The story begins with darkness and death, uh, a family that's, that's going because of famine. They're traveling to the land of Moab in order to provide for themselves. They're just looking for food. They're desperate. It's during the time of judges, which meant that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everybody is trying to just survive, okay? So this is a very dark time. And even in the first chapter, you get this promise of hope. Uh, there's this Moabite woman named Ruth who promises to be with Naomi. She's not going to be alone, whatever she faces. She promises to go wherever she stays. She's going to stay wherever she moves. She's going to move there with her. And ultimately, if she can't die with her, then God uh, do unto her likewise if she doesn't stay until death with this woman, Naomi. So you have this story of two widows trying to make their way in the world, um, trying to make provision. And last week we looked at their midnight visit to Boaz, appealing to him, proposing to him to be the redeemer. And the last scene that we left last week is Naomi, the older widow, the mother-in-law, reassuring Ruth that the situation will be dealt with. It's going to happen. And here's the situation. They have temporary provision, but they don't have ultimate provision. Boaz has been giving them exactly what they need up until this point, but they're wondering what's going to happen at the end of harvest. What happens when we can't go out in the field and just pick up what we need on a daily basis? What's going to happen to us? He's given them protection, but they don't have a protector. Presence, he's protecting them, but he doesn't know, they don't know what's going to happen to them after this point. He's told them that they can stay with his people in the field and no one's going to assault them. They're going to be safe. And they're wondering what's going to happen. They make this proposal in the last part of chapter 3 where she says, I want you to be my redeemer. I hope you're the one for me, Boaz. And Boaz replies in 3 verse 12 that he's going to do it. And this is how he says it. Before we get into chapter 4, he says, and now it's on the screen. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now we imagined them lying there awake until the morning. Both of them sleeping, camping out next to each other, wondering what in the world is about to happen. She goes home. She takes home six measures of barley to her mother-in-law, Ruth. And six is the number right before seven. I know that's obvious, but seven represented completion. It's like they're saying this little hint. It's almost done, but not quite. And that's where we leave things. Almost 
complete. There's almost a bow tied on the story. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4. It's going to be on the screen. I'd love for you to read along with me. And let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken of came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Curious, right? So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. So Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epithrath and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. He has given birth to him. Who's given birth to him? Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray that for those that are still in this room waiting on deliverance, wondering how their story is going to unfold, anticipating someday when you answer the greatest questions of their heart, I pray that today you would plant in their hearts hope 
that you would make us a people that love one another in the ways that are demonstrated here in this passage, that we'd love both our family and those around our family well because of the ways that you're loving us. And I pray this in the name and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so first you got this proposal story that goes backwards, okay? Everybody in the room that's married, you've got some story of how you ask the person to marry you. Usually the guy asks the dad first. Guys in the room, that's how it works. You ask the dad first. Then the guy asks the girl. The girl tells the community, and then everybody celebrates on the day of their wedding. And in this story, you've got the reverse actions, right? The girl comes to the guy. The guy says, wait, I need to go ask some people. Then he goes and asks the people, and eventually the community comes together and celebrates. I want to make a couple observations, really simple observations that people wouldn't have to be a good preacher to do, okay? First of all, we're going to look at what does love look like in action. Love takes action. This demonstration of God's kindness and covenant love, the hesed that's being displayed in this story, is always taking the next faithful action. And then, one of my favorite things about the story of Ruth is that all throughout it, The people are surrounding one another with these affirmations and blessings and celebrations. And now we see a whole community come around these two widows, now redeemed, and a child on her lap, and they celebrate. So let's ask the Lord to speak to us in those ways. First, let's look at how love takes action. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. I want to point out a few things about Boaz's action in this moment, okay? It's not careless. He's had half the night to think about what he's about to do, okay? He's laying there. I know that guy didn't go to sleep, right? He's laying there wondering why this lady is sleeping at his feet or not sleeping at his feet. And in all those moments he's sitting there, he's probably planning out, what are my next steps of action? And he goes straight to the gate. Now, why does he go to the gate? It's not an impulsive move. He's going there. Because this is a place of business. It's a place where all the town's officials and elders would come in and out to go to the fields in the morning or come in in the afternoon. There's exchanges and contracts made. It's a place that's highly visible in contrast to the ladies coming in in the dark of night. Here he is going in in the broad daylight morning. He goes to the place where anyone could see him take this action. Him going to this place is the equivalent of getting a lawyer. He sets up court, and I want you to imagine Boaz early morning, the light of day, he sends Ruth off, and he goes there and he sits down, which means he had to sit there for a while before other people started coming through the gate. And he's anticipating that there's a right way in order to show his love to Naomi and Ruth. He's not just going to take action in the moment as Perhaps Naomi and Ruth would have anticipated a woman showing up in the middle of the night in the dark cover and she smells good. She's taking a bath and he says, there's a right way to do this. And he goes about it the right way. He calls uh, old so-and-so over. Now, the word in your Bible probably says friend, okay? But this is a little less than a friend. The actual word means what's his name, okay? In other words, they're not going to name the guy who doesn't take responsibility in this. He's just somebody who's supposed to be forgotten. So so so-and-so, or what's his name? We're going to call him what's-his-name, Redeemer number one. He says, I want you to come over here, and uh, I have something I need to talk to you about. So what's-his-name comes over. This is the person who's both 
it's his right and his responsibility to take care of these two women, okay? Both of those things. A privilege and a responsibility to take care of both the field and the, the women. Now, I want you to look at his negotiation skills, too. Look at Boaz. He says, now, Naomi is selling a field. What you need to understand is the idea of her selling this field so that it's no longer in her possession is not what it's talking about here. It's, in, it's a way of saying, you can lease this field and take the yield of its crops until Naomi passes away. It's not going to be your possession. It's Naomi's possession or whoever in Elimelech's family line. It's their possession, and you can come and take it for a few years, and then, you know what? After Naomi's gone, the field, the field could become yours. So question number one, do you want the field? Do you want the potential to add further provision and money into your pockets? Do you want this gift, this asset? First deal, he looks at it and impulsively says, yep, I'll take it. I'm going to take that option. Verse five. Then he adds the responsibility onto it. Okay, the day that you take the field by the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now, a few weeks ago, we explained what did it mean to be a redeemer? What did it mean to be a kinsman redeemer in this time period with this culture? It meant that if someone died, someone who was close to them as a family relative, it was their responsibility to not only care for them, to perpetuate the name. In other words, to give an offspring to that family. So, as he presents deal number two, you not only get the field and a potential addition to your assets, you also get Ruth, who's much younger, and you, he spells out what the responsibility is going to be. Now, during the time of Judges, I would anticipate that there could have been some kind of debate about what the responsibility of men was. There's a lot of people probably skirting around their responsibilities. Boaz spells it out for him. You're going to have to take responsibility for these women. These two vulnerable women are going to be yours to take care of, and you're going to have to give something to them that will put you at risk. Look at his response. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Why not? Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In other words, this deal, this negotiation reveals what the man was hopeful about. He did a, a risk-benefit ratio analysis right in this moment. Now, every time you take action on a potential uh, health issue that you have, doctors are running a risk-to-benefit ratio of what they have to do in order to save you. Not everybody needs chemo, but some people, the risk of cancer is more intense than the risk of chemo. And in this moment, he takes a risk-to-benefit an, uh, ratio analysis, and he says, hey, this is not worth the benefit. This has this vague reminder of Orpah in chapter 1. If you'd forgotten who she is, she's the other sister-in-law whose, whose mother-in-law was Naomi. Naomi looks at both of them right before she leaves, and she's heading out, and she says, look, things are going to fare better for you if you go back to your families, find a new husband, and stay in the land of Moab. And Orpah kisses her and says, see ya, okay? 
Ruth, in the other hand, says, no, I'm going to stick with you. And here you have a similar picture. One who's presented with the responsibility and all the burden of what it's going to mean if he takes on the responsibility of these widows. And he says, actually, you know what? This sounds like a higher risk than benefit ratio, and I will not do it. In contrast to the kindness and the covenantal love that, that Boaz is about to show to these two women. Beautiful picture, side by side. Now, all of us fear this kind of transaction. All of us are terrified of the moment when someone looks at us and says, the risk isn't worth the benefit. And some of you in this room probably feel like you've been passed over before. Someone pushes you to the side or sees the cost of doing life with you or the complexity of you along with all of your baggage, right? Everybody, anybody ever felt that way? I would say, hey, probably everyone in the room has seen someone doing the, the risk to benefit ratio analysis of you in relationship, and they're, they're quickly measuring up. Is this person going to be more of a benefit to me or more of a risk to me? Boaz becomes this beautiful picture of what it looks like. He knows what it will mean, and he takes them on. Before I get to that, uh, Marriage is one of the places we see that kind of love. The kind of love that says, you know what? I'm taking on all the risks of your life with me. Tim Keller describes this kind of love in the meaning of marriage. He says it like this, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. In other words, the way that this so-and-so, what's-his-name, Redeemer number one, passes on the option to redeem them, and the way that Boaz sees all of it and he steps into it, it's the way that God loves his covenant people. He sees all of our needs and he doesn't, he's not confused about what we bring to the equation. We don't bring anything to the equation. We bring lots of responsibility and God takes all of that for on himself and pours out this kind of love. He takes action on it. Boaz, on the other hand, in contrast to this, what's his name? So-and-so, redeemer number one. He understands the need and the responsibility and he says yes to it right there in the daylight, in the public. So wise too. He says yes to the field and all that it will bring him and he says yes to the two widows. And I'm not suggesting that he knows Naomi and Ruth perfectly. I'm saying that he anticipates all the complexities that that will bring and he says yes to it. Few applications before we move on. Uh, this is how love takes action, okay? It's intentional, it's anticipating all that it will mean, and it says yes over and over and over. He tells Ruth that he's willing, and then that pledge becomes action the next morning. He says, I'm going to do it. As the Lord lives, I'm doing this thing for you. And then look at verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This is the manner of attesting in Israel. Kind of hilarious. 
if you ask me. He takes off his shoe. He says, here's my shoe. I'm raising it up. Don't ever forget it. Everyone can see. Now, at this point, he's got so-and-so. He's got the 10 elders, and they're all starting to gather around. There's a group of people saying, something's going down. And the people are all gathered around. And when he says it, he says it to all the people. Look at verse 8. It says, when the Redeemer said, this to, uh, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day of all that brought from, bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilion, to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead. And in this moment, he's saying, she's mine. The other guy saw the field, dismissed the wife. He saw both and said yes to both. I want this woman to be my wife. Ruth 4.13, it says this, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Love now accomplishes the redemption that they had longed for and tried to make on their own and and sought to, to figure out in the previous chapter. And then he gives them a miracle. And it says in chapter one that they had been in Moab for at least 10 years. And during that time, somewhere along the way, Ruth had been married and had never given birth, waiting and waiting for God to do something. And in this moment, God opens up her womb. There's only two times that it says the Lord acts. There's lots of times that the Lord is referenced in this, called out for blessing. First, the Lord acts to bring about the famine, closing and providing land. And in this moment, at the close, it says the Lord acted again. He opens the womb. And the majority of this story is just Boaz acting in ordinary faithfulness. Him being a good boss, protecting his workers from assault, providing for the poor, sharing a meal with them. In all of these ordinary ways, love was taking action, taking shape. And God was working alongside all of these ordinary things. So observation number one, love takes action and this is what it looks like. God uses ordinary faithfulness to bring about his extraordinary redemptive story. There's nothing spectacular about the action that love brought in Boaz's life. He just stood up and was a man. He took care of the people that was working for him. He was a good boss. And in all of those ways, we get to see in hindsight that God was working through it to provide this extraordinary story of redemption. He provides and protects And if you were to ask Boaz, I assume that Boaz would have been the kind of guy that just said, you know, I was just doing what I knew to do. He doesn't need someone to say, I need you to do something extraordinary here. God's going to call you to some amazing thing, right? He just was consecrated in the right moment at the right time. And he did the thing he knew he was supposed to do. This week I was reading back over uh, an essay by Francis Schaeffer. I love this and I regularly visit this when I feel completely insignificant. So I would recommend it if you feel insignificant at any moment in your life. He, he discusses in this uh, essay called No Little People, No Little Place. He, he had written a sermon early on in ministry about the rod of Moses, Okay. And he invites everybody just to consider this dead stick of wood, okay? So I want you to picture it in your mind, you know, him shepherding with it in the wilderness, this dead stick for years. And then throughout the story of Exodus, this dead stick becomes this instrument that God uses, 
right? You see at the beginning, it like turns into a snake. He picks it up. It's still just a dead stick of wood in the hands of Moses, helped by the hand and power of God to become something miraculous. It's the the stick that he touches the water with. It turns it to blood. It's the stick that Aaron touches the water with, makes it pure. It's the stick he raises up and the waters are parted so them to walk through it. It's the stick that's raised that they'll be successful in battle. And all these moments, this rod of Moses is just an ordinary piece of wood, right? It's being wielded in a very specific way. He invites us to consider this, and I want us to consider it before we move on to the second point. Consider the mighty ways. It's going to be on the screen. This is Francis Schaeffer. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little. If the little is truly consecrated to God, there are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, only consecrated and unconsecrated people. The problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. Is Francis Schaeffer the Francis Schaeffer of God? Now I have the next slide. I want you just to ask that question. Is your name here, the, your name here of God? Put your name in there. Because that's ultimately the question of love, becoming consecrated in such a way that his kindness and his covenant faithfulness can pour out through the likes of you and me. God can so use a dead branch of wood and he chooses to use this faithful man, unassuming, good employer, protector of his people. You ever feel like, (laughs) what's the big deal? I know that lots of moms uh, who are just in the daily grind of changing diapers and just being faithful, or maybe you're in the season where you make a lunch every morning, you wonder, God, is this it? And no matter what your station in life, you can wonder that question. Uh, one of my favorite books has become a liturgy uh, 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 of the ordinary. Sorry. That's not the name of the book. By Douglas Kane McKelvey, he writes these liturgies for every day, every moment holy. Sorry, that's the name of the book. I'd already turned the page. Every moment holy, okay? And he writes out these prayers, and one of them is a liturgy for those who have not done great things for God. I've read this before for you guys if you've been here for a while. And he prays this prayer where he's saying, I know that I haven't done anything great for you, God. I just feel like my life is kind of small. And he prays this as a blessing over everyone who would feel that way. And I want to read it as a blessing over you. Be content in the station he has appointed you to in this season. And yet be ever ready to move at the impulse of his love. Tend well those things that are before you, however humble they are. And he will lead you in time to other good works he's appointed for you. Whether big or small, it is of no matter. He attaches no numbers to your service. It is your heart and faithfulness he appraises. Seek not your own glory. Seek God and his glory will be seen 
in you, radiant in humility and in the strength of his might made manifest, even in your brokenness, evident and even in the smallest of services rendered unto him or offered in his name, even though they be seen by none but you and him, your reward is secure. So love takes action. Doesn't look extraordinary, looks extremely ordinary. And somehow that's how God's ordained to reveal his redemptive story in the world. How's everybody going to respond to this? Just a quick question. How are people going to say, okay, uh, Boaz, older man, successful businessman, owner of land, pretty great guy. Probably the ladies in the town always wondered, I wonder if he'll ever get married. They're all talking about him, you know, wondering, is he ever going to have a lady in his life? All the buzz of town have noticed, maybe, perhaps, Boaz seems to notice Ruth. Do you see how he's talking to her the other day? You see how he was talking to her at the meal? Everyone is speculating. So you got to wonder, how are they going to respond to this moment when he makes her proposal a reality? Look at how they respond in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Now, I just want to take note that the 10 elders have added to their number at this point, right? Everybody's gathering around. Everybody's coming close. Everybody's hearing, what is Boaz going to do for this young lady? And they don't just say, yes, we have witnessed you say what you are going to do. They begin to pour out blessing. (laughs) They pour out with anticipation and celebration all that God is going to do through this ordinary act of God's kindness through a man. They say, May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. In other words, this is Moabite, foreign woman. She's going to be one of us. She's going to be like our first mother in the tribe of Judah, Rachel and Leah. She's going to be like these women. May you act worthily. Now they go from blessing to honoring. Sorry, I need to read this. May you act worthily in Epithrath and renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Another scandalous story, by the way. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All of the people look at Boaz. They look at his act and they begin to celebrate and anticipate. This is what it means. And so second observation, here's what love does, okay? It surrounds the people with anticipation and celebration of all that God is accomplishing. This is what love looks like. It looks like a community of faith surrounding someone and saying, I see that. I've been anticipating that. Here's the ways that I see God working and I can see him bringing it to fruition in the future. I can see all the ways that God's going to work. They're not just witnesses. They're affirming God's work in this couple. Like Rachel and Leah, the Lord make you like them. She's gonna be one of us. I already said it. Now there's this theme throughout the book of Ruth and I just wanna put a big exclamation point on it here because this is the final chapter. The exclamation point I want to say is that all throughout this book, there's blessings and honor and affirmation that people would speak. In chapter one, they're speaking a benediction. 
There's at least five throughout the book. First, Naomi to Ruth. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you find rest in the house of your husband. She's speaking what she anticipates and hopes over these two daughters-in-law. Then Boaz, you see him showing up in the field and all of his workers say, may the Lord bless you. Ruth to Naomi, I'm sticking with you. Where you go, I'll go. Lodge, I'll lodge. Die, you die. I'm going there too. May the Lord do to me also. If anything but death parts me from you. She's anticipating the future of them together. Boaz to Ruth, he says to her, the Lord repay you for the kindness that you've shown to your mother-in-law and a full reward for the kindness that you've shown. He's looking at her, naming the thing that's honorable and then anticipating the way that God's going to bless it. Naomi then to Ruth concerning Boaz. She says, look, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then Boaz to Ruth again. May you be blessed by the Lord. All the people to Boaz. May the Lord make this woman fruitful. May you act worthily. May your house be like Perez. And the women then speak to Naomi. Look at verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name, that's the Redeemer Obed, be renowned in Israel. He show you... He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. Now, they're talking about a little infant here, okay? They're looking at this baby in her lap, and they say, may he be like a restorer of life to you. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Now, I, I want to point out that God's people, our words are to be seasoned with salt, with anticipation over all that we hope for the people around us and celebration for everything you see that God's done in their life. We should be people who outdo one another in showing honor. That's what God's called us to. That's what he shows us in his story. He loves for people to call out on his blessing in other people's lives. These women are looking at this child and saying, I anticipate all that God's going to accomplish through this little human, this little baby. I anticipate it and I celebrate it with you. I can see it. So I wanna ask the question real quick, why don't we do that? How come? Why are we not the kind of people? I'm not, I'm not accusing you, but I'm just asking. There's a lot of spots where that might fit, right? Can you imagine it? Like you look around and think, like I can anticipate the way God's gonna work in this person's life. I can, like when we commission these two new families, right? Some of you could see the ways they're joining up with us and you can imagine and anticipate. Yes, it's going to be such a blessing both to them and through them and their children are going to be raised here and we're going to surround them with godliness and, and the stories of who God is and how he's working. I really believe that some of the reason that we don't celebrate and anticipate God's blessing in people's life is just lovelessness, okay? It's because we don't love, and the, the number one reason we don't love is because we don't put ourselves in places where we can be loved by God. You cannot pour out from an empty cup we haven't had filled from Him. You just cannot. One of the reasons that we're loveless in our relationships is because we have not been loved. Another reason that we might, we might love all these people, but we love them ignorantly, Okay? God's putting a community of faith together 
where we can anticipate the good things that are coming and celebrate when they happen. To weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're good at weeping with those who weep because everybody can see something bad is happening. It's much harder and it takes more knowledge and understanding of one another for us to look at each other and say, I anticipate these good things in your life. Another reason that we don't love in this way is because we're prayerless, okay? We don't pray. We don't pray for the people around us, okay? That sounds heavy, I know. It's, it's, just bear with me for a moment. When you begin to pray for people around you, your mind and your imagination begins to be redeemed. And you can see all the ways that God might work in their life. We're mindful of the gap. Someone told me uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, just I was thinking about our church and thinking like, oh, there's so much that God wants for us. There's so many things that he's calling us to in the future. And, and this person said, be mindful of the gap, okay? The gap being, consider where you've come from, right? Think about all the places God's brought us through, through COVID and all of that period of time. And now here we are together. Think about the gap that we've come from and think about the gap that lies ahead. Where are we not yet? And when you love people around you in ways that embody this kind of love, it means that you're mindful of all that God's done and you see it and you celebrate it and you name it and you say, I see God at work in your life. You used to be like this and now you're like this and you anticipate all that God's going to do. Now, if people don't know you that way, how can they love you that way? This community looks at Boaz, they look at Ruth, they look at Naomi, and they begin to speak benedictions over their life, blessing. They anticipate being this kind of community where they just see, we're going to see these things unfold in your life. Now, in just a moment, we're going to get to celebrate baptism. Pretty exciting, okay? Uh, baptism is a moment like that for us. It's a moment where the true community of God celebrates the accomplishment of God in someone's life. We're saying, hey, only God can bring someone from death to life, and that's what it looks like. We're going to see that demonstrated, uh, someone being buried and raised in the waters of baptism. And when we do that, we see God is at work in these individuals and all of us are anticipating the ways that he's going to work in the future. So we see it, we celebrate it. For us, baptism is that kind of symbol. What's happened inwardly is getting expressed outwardly. Somebody asked me this week, how is a disciple made? Ultimately, it starts like this, okay? Someone who has little or no interest in God. Their hearts are spiritually dead. They have no interest in the things of God. Somehow comes to life. That's how a disciple is made. Ultimately, it is the work of God and we get to participate with him, seeing how he's working, celebrating and anticipating the ways he's not yet worked. So second observation conclusion is this. God uses a community of people to anticipate and celebrate his redemptive story in our lives. So before I move forward, who is a witness to your life? Who will stand at the gate and say, I see these things? Because you need people in your life that can anticipate all these things and speak them around you and over you and pray over you and celebrate when they see God answer those prayers. 
Who's charging you to act worthily? Look at this group. They don't just say, these good things are going to happen. They say to Boaz, may you act worthily. In other words, I anticipate you're going to be a good man, Boaz. I anticipate that you're going to live a life of purity and fidelity to your spouse, Boaz. They're speaking those kind of things over Boaz too. It's not just, this is awesome, you did a good thing. They're speaking a charge over him too. And that's what it looks like to bless as well. So whose life is witnessing yours and whose lives are you witnessing? And if God's called you into community with them, be the kind of person who loves them in this way, who anticipates all the good and speaks it over them with blessing and celebrates all the good and says, yes, Lord, I see it. Yes and amen. People are not, they are not too high on encouragement. Did y'all know that? You got, like everybody's tank is not filled up and they're good. They need us to speak over one another words of life and blessing. Let your words be seasoned with salt. Okay, I'm moving forward. Sorry, run out of time. I'm way out of time. Whew. All right, Mike Cosper in his book, uh, Recapturing the Wonder, he talks about how disenchanted we all have become, right? You look at the world and say, it's not magical anymore. It's not any of these things. We have a scientific explanation of the oils and canvas and minerals that make up a piece of art, but that can't capture how it takes our breath away. And this story should provoke us and take our breath away. Why? Because it's the story of God's redemption. We know this, that God is working everything together for good. Now, some of you are still waiting on it, and some of you can look back and see it, like what we just sang about all of us are longing for that to be our story. So Romans 8, 28, we know that God's, for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Conclusion, hey, God's making everything work out according to his plan if you belong to him. And so I want to ask you this question, where's God's story unfolding around you? Because in this story, we see a man who takes action with his word. He doesn't just say, I promise I'm going to do this for you. He takes action. Love looks like action, okay? It's not just words. Love looks like anticipating and celebrating with others while we wait to see the other side of how God's story unfolds. So some of you, maybe you know what the right thing to do is. You just haven't taken the step of faith. Do it. That's what repentance and obedience would look like. Some of you might see the ways around you. You've been silent when you see God's word unfolding. Some of you might need to join a community where you're in a small group, maybe on a regular basis that hadn't been a practice for you. I would encourage you to do it. Okay. I want us to pray to that end. And then I want us to read this liturgy before communion. Every week we take communion here. And I said some things that hopefully made you feel like, hey, I want to live in that kind of faithfulness. If you're feeling a little bit defeated, you're like, I don't have that kind of love for the people around me. You feel like you need more cup be filled than yours poured out right now. It's okay. You're welcome here. And when we take this communion cup every week, we remember that Christ ultimately gave the price that we could. We, he did what we couldn't do for ourselves, okay? So I want us to read this liturgy together, and then we're going to take communion and sing. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to ask some questions. Then you respond to them. First question is this. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? We who believe have every right to dine at this table. What gives us this right? We have this right because Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. 
not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior. Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. (laughs) Let's come and take and eat and remember.